Warning! The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard, or believed to be true, about how the human body works, and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy! Well, thanks for joining us again. We are once again looking at the idea surrounding vaccines and vaccinations. One of the things that we tend to look at, and I'm not quite sure why we're still even discussing this, is why we should or should not vaccinate. And a lot of the arguing about vaccines and the efficacy of vaccinations, we think about as being something new, something that is uh, a modern phenomenon, but it's not really a modern phenomenon. If we look back historically, we can see some of the Debates surrounding vaccines and vaccinations that go back to the 1700s, the 18th and 19th century, 1700s, 1800s, surrounding inoculations, what we would consider to be vaccinations nowadays, surrounding uh, inoculations of smallpox. And most of the debates that we see surrounding this degree of vaccinations is more of a... uh, Anglo-European and English-European mindset that they have a superior point of view relative to everybody else. As most of the ideas surrounding inoculations and ideas surrounding vaccinations were coming from rural areas and coming from non-Anglo, non-English sources, in particular coming out of what was then the Ottoman Empire, the Turks in particular. But we also have to look at historically what we're looking at in terms of vaccinations and the idea that people who were exposed to different types of viral entities had lower incidences of illnesses relative to others. This includes some of the uh, horse keepers, some of the milkmaids. Those would be the uh, women of villages who would go out and milk the cows to provide milk for the community would have less, would have less actual um, infection relative to those who did not have a similar set of exposures. And that's one of the reasons why we use the term vaccination. So, so vodka is the, the cow term. And so it deals with cowpox in terms of the milkmaid, in terms of the, the mythos of vaccinations. But one of the large one of the biggest large scale vaccinations that were out there was with smallpox and smallpox epidemic outbreaks that would take place. And if you look at historically as we're recording here in 2023 in in the United States, people who don't want to look at it historically would not understand that we've had vaccine mandates and or inoculation mandates throughout American history, particularly with military. Uh, George Washington was uh, reported to have required inoculations for smallpox within the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War because of outbreaks that took place with smallpox during that time. And so the idea about having this kind of debate about should we or should we not vaccinate is nothing new. But the problem is, is that because of the rise of misinformation, the virulence of the arguments has increased recently which is why we make which is why we tend to see this as more of a recent phenomenon 
And so what we'll do is we'll spend the next little bit of time here talking about how we can go about battling some of this misinformation and what this misinformation is actually presenting so that we can have a good foundation to hopefully encourage others who are hesitant to vaccinate themselves or vaccinate their uh, children or those who are underneath their uh, care to encourage them to do vaccines, to utilize vaccines. Vaccines work. Vaccines are safe. There is a lot of myths and misinformations out there that pertain to it. And so let's talk about that today. So what are we looking at? What is the idea that is going on here? And let's see what we can do in order to combat that misinformation. And so one of the first things we have to do when we start looking at and combating the misinformation is what are we actually looking at when we're talking about vaccines? Because one of the big misinformations out there or one of the, the misnomers that's out there is that we're actually giving the person the, the disease, the illness. And that comes from how Salk and Sabin went about doing a lot of the early work in vaccines, and particularly vaccines for polio, even though it wasn't the first vaccines that were out there. It just happened to be one of the first major uh, vaccination movements that we saw was the difference between alive and a dead or a, an ineffective viral body in terms of the vaccines. And what we're looking at there is we're looking at the polio vac- virus. And so when we start looking at vaccines, vaccines are not the actual viral or pathogenic entity. They're not the actual disease. They are a, uh, in terms of what's referred to as the inactivated or the live attenuated vaccines, they were once the live virus or once the live pathogenic disease-causing entity, disease-causing organism. But because of denaturing that took place, because of inactivations that took place in terms of making sure that it was not any more living, that is not an actual live virus. And so when people talk about, oh, I got the disease because I got the vaccine, what they are usually referencing is they're usually referencing two things. We'll talk about one of these a little bit later on, is they're referencing the fact that they got the the vaccination and they went through the novel response that the body goes through whenever they get exposed to a virus. And that's where you kind of feel kind of not the best. If it happens to be the flu, you kind of feel fluish. But you don't actually have the virus. You don't actually have the, the disease-causing entity, the disease-causing organism. What you're simply doing is you're simply expressing the immune response that would take place if you happen to have been infected. And the response you're seeing is your body's own immune system going into responsiveness in order to establish a known, what's referred to as an immunocompetent response. That's the same immunocompetent response we talked about previously to the disease-causing organism, to, to the virus, to whatever the pathogenic entity happens to be. Now, a more recent form of vaccines has gone and looked at, okay, particularly with what's referred to as the retroviruses. These are viruses that are RNA-based viruses, such as influenza, such as the more recent COVID-19 virus. A lot of the coronaviruses are RNA-based viruses. With these viruses, what we're looking at doing is we're looking at trying to determine what 
protein is going to make the immune system respond to it. And there was some very novel research that took place in the 1980s, 1990s, and early 2000s that looked at this RNA issue. And what they did is that they said, okay, we know the RNA for the virus. Let's, ma- let's use that RNA, but let's use the only part of the RNA that is going to cause an antigen response within the body. That's the response that is triggered by the immune system to a cell marker that says, I don't belong here. And so what they did is they developed what's referred to as the mRNA vaccines. And so what the mRNA vaccines are is this small bits of RNA, and the small bits of RNA are going to code for the antigen marker for the, for the pathogen, for the disease-causing organism. And what it's doing is it's doing the same thing that the, the inactivated vaccine and the live attenuated vaccine is doing is it's causing the immune system to go into active drive. And by going into active drive, it's going to trigger an immunocompetence to that specific type of pathogen. And one of the problems that came out with the, at least with the COVID-19 virus, and one of the arguments that people made against using the COVID-19 virus is that because RNA is genetic material, we are somehow putting new genetic material into our body. Well, that's true. But every time we eat something, we're putting genetic material into our body because the genetic material of a piece of fruit, the genetic material of a piece of meat is found within the cells of the fruit of the piece of meat that we're eating. And so it's, it's, it's a misnomer to, to use that as an argument against the use of the MRI vaccine. Now, within the United States, there was a big hoopla over the, the name of the project that went into developing the, the COVID-19 RNA uh, vaccines or vaccines in general against COVID because they, they decided to, to title it Warp Speed. And so that idea was is that we were somehow moving faster than what we should normally work at. And there was another bit of hoopla around some of the FDA issues as a term, in terms of approvals, and we'll get to that a little bit later on. In what we're looking at, and what's one of the, the big arguments against it was is that it was moving too fast, that we were moving beyond what the technology that we knew happened to be. But the thing is, is that we weren't moving faster than the technology. The technology that we knew, the techniques that we knew, the processes that we knew from all of the RNA viral scientists, from the vaccine developers, had been around for 20 or 30 years. And so it's not that we were moving faster than what the technology was, is we're simply utilizing newer medical techniques to provide things that we've been doing on mass scale for at least since the 1700s with smallpox and since the mid-1900s with a majority of the vaccines that we talk about in terms of things like uh, measles, bump, rubella, tetanus, polio. And so what we're attempting to do with all of the vaccines is we're simply attempting to establish a means by which the body is able to limit the spread of a pathogen, limit the spread of a disease-causing organism within a population. And it does this by allowing each individual within the population to become immunocompetent to the disease without actually having to survive the disease. And it goes into the idea of surrounding herd immunity. And when we start looking at this idea about limiting spread, and if we limit enough spread, we get to eradication of the disease. 
which is going to lead to another folly that some people make as it relates to vaccinations here in a second. What we're able to do with vaccinations is we're able to establish herd immunity at a rate that is about 100 times faster than what would normally occur if we were to allow for natural, you put quotes around that, immune responses to lead to herd immunity. In order to develop herd immunity, we need to have at least 75% of the population be either vaccinated or immunized to a disease. And if we were to let this kind of go in terms of a pandemic or an epidemic event, we have to lose between 25% and 33% of the entire population within an area in order to establish that herd immunity. And that's with the remainder of the population surviving the infection. And so what vaccines do is that it allows us to, to mimic exposure to the disease-causing organism, the pathogen, without actually needing to survive exposure to the pathogen. We're able to establish that that 75% plus population being immunized to a virus through vaccination processes or be vaccinated against a a bacterium or be vaccinated against a, a prion due to vaccinations without having to lose a significant portion of the population within that time span. If we get enough of the population to become vaccinated combined with a proportion of the population surviving infection, we can actually get eradication. And eradication doesn't mean that the disease doesn't exist anymore. It simply means that the disease does not spread through the community. And this is where we start running into some of the fallacies as it pertains to why people don't vaccinate. And so once again, the argument falls into the efficacy of vaccinations. And if vaccinate, and one of the questions that usually gets raised about well, if vaccinations are so good, why do I have to get a new vaccine for the flu every year? And part of that comes into the fact that the viruses are constantly evolving, are constantly making small little changes that we have to update our immunocompetence to. But the other thing is that vaccines have a normal waning to them. They have a normal decay that takes place over time. And so we have to have constant updates to our vaccinations in order to ensure that we have the proper level of immunocompetence within ourselves so that we can protect ourselves from other people, but at the same time, we can protect other people from ourselves. And so one of the things that comes into play here is that we have to remember that we're dealing with a set of opinions that indicates that what I have to say is as valuable as what somebody else has to say. And that's fine. But what we can't do is we can't say that my opinion is the equivalent of what the facts happen to be. And my understanding of human physiology and my understanding of immune function is the same as someone who spent their career studying it. And this is where when we start looking at this and start trying to change opinions about the idea surrounding vaccines and vaccinations, we have to take care when discussing it because, once again, a lot of the arguments on the against vaccine side come from either logical fallacies or from presentation of misinformation. And here's the thing when it comes to logical fallacies. If I make a single logical fallacy within my argument, we can negate most of the rest of the argument because that logical fallacy is going to be part of the foundation for making the argument. And so what we have to do is that we have to take care when we're discussing this with others. And one of the things that has 
come out in a lot of publications recently, and it makes sense in terms of the cognitive psychology, is that it takes more time and energy to eliminate bad information than it does to teach good information. And this is how myths and misconceptions get locked into our psyche. And so what we're looking at here is we're looking at the fact that we have conflated myths and misconceptions into being factual recognitions. As we go through our discussion here, what we have to remember is that we're looking at and discussing two different ideas here. We're discussing a scientific approach to human physiology and human health in such a way as to convince people who don't want to listen to the science that they need to listen to the science. And part of the reason is, is that we're basically dealing with a attack on the use of vaccinations. And it's clustered around three principal ideas here, anti-scientific beliefs, partisan ideologies, and groupthink. And the problem is, is that I can't have a scientific discussion with someone that doesn't utilize scientific fundamentals. Very recently, we started to realize that we have to put the term belief into some of the discussions that we have in science. One of the things we have to remember is that science is not a belief system. It's a process of producing logical observations, empirical observations, objective observations, eliminating the subjectivity of our observations from what we're doing so that we can provide a logical uh, process that leads to inferences. And the thing with the inferences is that inferences can change. And inferences change based off of changes in the facts that we have. And this is where a lot of the anti-vaccination discussion as relates to uh, scientific understanding is that, well, the science constantly changes. Well, that's the nature of science. Science is constantly changing. And because science is constantly changing, we have to change with the science. We have to accept what, what science knows and what science doesn't know. And we can only go off of what do we know? What can we objectively measure? And what can we analytically prove? One of the things that, that takes place within this discussion as it pertains to a lot of the group thinking that comes into play. One of the things we really can't separate the group think from the partisan ideology. Now, what's interesting is that this partisan ideology issue has kind of flipped within the last couple of years pertaining to vaccinations as it used to be a very, at least within the United States, an excessively liberal, put quotes around that in terms of liberal and conservative, a liberal ideology against vaccinations. That was until... 2020, 2021, with the introduction of the COVID vaccination processes and the necessity to do a mass inoculation very rapidly of the population in order to curb the pandemic that was taking place with the COVID-19 virus, in which a lot of the partisan ideology kind of flipped in terms of right-wing, left-wing, conservative, liberal ideology within the vaccinations. And we'll get to one of the logical fallacies pertaining to that here in a little bit. But within that partisan ideology, we got a lot of groupthink that took place. And the problem with groupthink is that groupthink is very restrictive in terms of what it allows for discussions to take place. There is groupthink among scientists. I will be the first to admit that. In fact, I'm probably not the first to admit that. But groupthink in science and groupthink within scientists 
is a little bit different than the group that we're talking about here in terms of the in terms of how can we get people to vaccinate again when they are unwilling to vaccinate. And a lot of the group think that comes out comes about mainly because someone I like or someone that I think has some sort of authority on the subject has said something that I agree with. And the problem with that approach is that that approach blinds me to other viewpoints. And when I approach it from a blinded viewpoint, I'm unable to change my understanding and grow in my understanding of what vaccines are and what vaccines can do in terms of the vaccines. But it's also the same that we see with other topics as it pertains to health and human physiology. And what we have to remember is, is that when we're looking at and discussing these ideas, is that a lot of the anti-vaccination arguments, a lot of the groupthink arguments, a lot of the anti-scientific arguments are based on one of two foundational points. They're either founded on a scientifically invalid argument or they're founded on a logical fallacy. And if once again, if, if we found our argument on a logical fallacy, we must ignore the rest of the argument as being truthful because the fallacy automatically negates the truthfulness of the argument. And we cannot go ahead and use a truthiness argument here for those of you that are any fans of Stephen Colbert's character with his truthiness and the ability to change words to mean whatever we want the word to mean. Words have meanings because words have meanings. If we want to have a truthful discussion, we cannot have a fallacious argument, a fallacy as the foundation for the argument. And so what are some of the common fallacies that we're going to see? We'll see things like false dichotomy, appeal to authority, false equivalencies, begging the question, the post hoc ergo prepare hoc, the straw men arguments, the ad hominids, the reliance on the antidotes, the red herring, and then we get the sunken cost and base rate fallacies. What are some of the scientifically invalid arguments that we're going to see? We'll see arguments that, oh, it's going to contain heavy metals. It's somehow going to overload the immune system. That natural immunity is better. That vaccines cause immune disorders. That vaccines cause neurological disorders. The statement pertaining to containing heavy metals is particularly around the metals mercury and aluminum, both of which are known to cause neurological issues. They're neurotoxins. But there's not enough aluminum in vaccines, if there is aluminum in vaccines, to cause issues. And the mercury that's there is a non-bioaccumulating mercury that was once used as a stabilizing molecule in vaccines that is no longer being used. The idea about overloading the immune system or causing immune disorders is related to arguments pertaining to onsets of autoimmune diseases or allergies. There is a protein that is sometimes used within some of the live attenuated and inactivated vaccines that come from egg proteins, egg albumins, that if you are allergic to egg albumin, you can have an allergic response to the vaccines. People who have autoimmune diseases could have an adverse event to a vaccine, but it's not going to cause an autoimmune disease. People who have allergies, once again, to the egg albumin or people who are susceptible to allergic reactions can have allergic reactions to vaccinations 
but it's not the vaccines that are causing the allergies to take place, nor is it the vaccines causing the autoimmune issues to take place. Those are things that are already occurring. The idea surrounding natural immunity being better, we've already discussed in the pre- in previous episodes. But we have to understand here is that vaccinations and the process of vaccinations is the same process as getting infected and surviving. There's no difference. There's no physiological difference. The only difference in between getting infected versus getting vaccinated is that if I'm infected, I have to survive. I have to survive. Whereas if I get a vaccination, I will survive. The idea around neuroatypical issues developing from vaccines is a non sequitur. Most of the idea that surrounds the neuroatypical issues coming about from vaccines is parents trying to find something or someone to blame for the neuroatypical behavior that their child is expressing. There was a, you put quotes around this because he's not a good scientist, a scientist that published a paper that showed a correlation in children who were diagnosed with autism who also received an MMR vaccine, a measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. Here's the thing with that publication. That publication was fraudulent. The researcher, whose name I will not give time to because I do not wish to publish or state his name, made up his results. He fabricated the, the results. He fabricated the results in order to support a position that he held. The study has been retracted. But the problem is, is that the news organizations covered the fabricated study, but failed to cover the fact that the study was fabricated. And it gave a foundation for parents that did not want to vaccinate their children out of fear of something happening to their children. It gave those parents credence for their point of view without understanding that the arguments being presented were invalid. If we're to do this based off of a correlation, one of the things we have to remember is that there is a tighter correlation between organic food sales and consumptions and the diagnosis of neuroatypical issues, in this case here, autism, because that's what the person decided to link the two. It is nearly one. It's 0.9971 in terms of the correlation. And so correlation is basically the percentage that two things are related to each other. And we have a nearly direct relationship between consumption of organic foods and diagnoses of autism. Much, 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 much higher than the purported association that the fraud doctor came up with. And yes, I understand by calling him a fraud doctor, I am potentially falling into an ad hominem, but I'm not going to attack him. I'm going to attack what he stated. Because what he stated was that there's a correlation that showed an increase in MMR vaccines with an increase in the diagnosis of neuroatypical behavior. But as Dennis Flattery stated in 2011, that conclusion is perhaps the most damaging medical hoax of the last 100 years. There is no empirical evidence whatsoever that MMR vaccines cause 
any type of neuroatypical behavior. Yet, because of the publication of that fraudulent data, we have a host of parents that refuse to vaccinate their children against measles, mumps, and rubella. And you can guess what's happened to the incidence rates of measles, mumps, and rubella. There are other reports that have come out, mainly from parents that have stated that their child who was or child who is neuroatypical started to present neuroatypical behaviors around the time that they were getting their vaccination complements. The problem here is, is that we are relying upon antidotes. And because we're relying upon anecdotal evidence, antidotes, we don't have good evidence. But we're also conflating the timing of when we see neuroatypical behaviors and when children are getting vaccinated. Neuroatypical behaviors is a neuroanatomical, neurophysiological issue. It's a neuroanatomical, neurophysiological issue. There are a host of hypotheses as to why neuroatypical behaviors arise. Those hypotheses have good evidence to support them, and none of the hypotheses are supported if vaccines is the explanation for the cause. Most neuroatypical behaviors develop due to developmental changes that take place that lead to changes in the neural networking within the brain that give rise to the spectrum of neurological behaviors. And once again, we have to remember that behaviors are just like every other thing, physiologically speaking, reside within a continuum. And we think about this and advocates are trying to get us to change terminology. And I'm still trying to get caught up with some of the newest terminology that surrounds this issue. So that's not really an issue. It's not an abnormality. They aren't symptoms. It's not a disease. But because of the changes in neural anatomy and neurophysiology of the brain, we get cognitive responses that differ from what we would expect from an individual. But what ends up happening is that when we get non-professionals making diagnoses, non-professionals diagnosing an issue, we tend to rely on the antidotes and we tend to perform a post hoc ergo prepare hoc fallacy. Because it happened last, it must be the cause for the issue. And that's because the way in which everybody's brain works is that we're trying to develop a cause and effect relationship with every incidence that we have. And the problem is, is that a lot of things that happen are not cause and effect, but are correlative. They happen in association with each other, not because one causes something else to occur. But the way in which our brain functions is that we're constantly trying to make cause and effect relationships out of correlation relationships. And so my infant child is getting their vaccinations. If they happen to have, within the continuum of neuroanatomy and neurophysiology, a neural networking, a nervous system networking, that would be described as neuroatypical, within the autism spectrum issues, 
we're not going to see them until they start to do verbal recognition. And verbal recognition is going to occur when we are coming towards the end of our vaccination timeframes, particularly for the infants. But those issues come about not from the vaccinations, but from developmental factors. One of the things that we used to hear a lot about, at least from the anti-vax movement, particularly with some of the juvenile vaccines that were given, is the idea surrounding the presence of heavy metals. Like I said earlier, we're really talking about two distinct types of heavy metals, mercury and aluminum. The mercury that we see within vaccines is what's referred to as a non-accumulating mercury. And so mercury, in terms of being an environmental issue, is there. But what we're looking at is we're looking at two different forms of mercury, ethyl mercury and methyl mercury. And what we're really looking at is we're looking at the the non-accumulating form of mercury. The accumulating form of mercury is the mercury we have to worry about that's coming through the industrial cleaners and other environmental toxic forms of mercury that get into the waterways, that get picked up by organisms within the aquatic environments that get picked up by the fish that will accumulate within the fish. That accumulating form of mercury is the mercury we have to worry about because it's the mercury that can become a long-term neurotoxic uh, issue, a a long-term neurotoxin. But the mercury that was once used and is no longer being used as a stabilizing molecule within vaccines is the non-accumulating form of the biological mercury. It's the form of mercury that our liver is able to process and eliminate quite efficiently, particularly with the dosage that one might get exposed to. There are other arguments surrounding uh, toxins within vaccines, such as presence of arsenic, but the amount that we see within vaccines is minuscule compared to what we see occurring within foods that are normally consumed, particularly fruits such as apples. And so because it doesn't have a chance to accumulate, and because the amount of other types of toxins that might be present within vaccines is minuscule compared to other forms of the heavy metals or other sources of the substances such as arsenic, we can ignore those arguments. Those are invalid arguments. They're arguments that on face value might seem correct, might be quote unquote common sense correct, but they're only common sense correct if you don't understand the science behind the argument. And so how can we go about disarming all of these talking points? How can we ensure that we're able to convey good information to disarm bad information. We'll talk about that in the next part. Thanks for uh, listening. If you happen to be on the YouTube, thanks for watching. Please make sure if you haven't already done so, hit that subscribe button, hit that like button, helps us out with all the metrics. Please share out what we're presenting. And as always, please go ahead and follow us on all of the various outlets that we are publishing. We'll come back with part B of, or second part of our discussion here relating to Why are we still having the discussion focusing on how we can disarm the various logical fallacies that are being presented?